Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, Thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I listen to you on the radio, and she respects your opinion as I do. So here's the question I've been separated for nine months. I'm working on a divorce. Is it okay to date? I believe it is. But she's not comfortable with being around people who know my divorce is not final. Can you help? He kind of answered it when he said, if she's not comfortable, it's not a good gig. And Pat- that is exactly right. If she isn't comfortable, then he needs to look at what's going on. I mean, come on now. If you haven't closed a chapter, then you really shouldn't start a new one. And what did he do? He started a new one before he closed it at all, and that's why she's not comfortable with it. You know, I try to be non-judgmental, but I really do believe that it's important to um, have boundaries and to determine what you need to do to end something before you start something else. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I am delighted to be with you tonight. It's been one of those weekends where, well, actually, it, it was an unusual weekend. I'm leaning into retirement. What does that mean? Oh, it means I'm going from about 55 clients to hopefully 30. Have I lessened my clientele this week? Well, no. But what I have done is that I have shortened my work week. I am officially working Monday through Thursday. And wow, I had um, the opportunity to not have any clients this weekend. Now, I worked on a lot of things. 
I've got some tops going on right now. I cannot tell a soul. Well, I'll give you a few hints. One thing is that I'm making a video. I'm making a cartoon on the science of partner betrayal. And I'm working with a very talented man, and we are almost done with this, and it's just going to be fabulous. So that's one thing I'm doing. The other thing is that I have decided that I am going to be the empathy um, czar of the world. I want to teach empathy to everyone. And to do that, I need clinicians and coaches everywhere to learn some of these empathy skills so that they can teach their clients, teach their coworkers, and make a difference in the world. That's what we need right now. In this world, we need empathy. So that's one thing I'm doing. Super excited about that. And then I'm taking a mindfulness course this weekend with the great Darren Ford. And um, one of the things that I believe is that mindfulness can really calm down an addictive brain. And I also believe that mindfulness can calm down an activated brain. Now, one might say activated, what do you mean? Well, Activated as in if you have an addiction and you're triggered and you've got a lot of urges and cravings, you need to calm that brain down. It's the opposite of, of uh, activating the dopamine center in the brain, the reward center. But what I also believe is that if you're a partner, you need to figure out how to feel safe and stable, and that means coming back into the window of tolerance. And so I'm hoping that this mindfulness course that I'm going to be taking will certify me into, with a lot of uh, extra hours, a lot of extra money, and a lot of um, extra time, I hope that I can really teach mindfulness in a way that people enjoy as opposed to going, I can't meditate. That's what I'm hoping for. And I'm hoping that I can practice with you. I really, really want to do that. And now I am super jazzed because I just got my copies of Unleashing Your Power, Moving Beyond Partner Betrayal. You know, you might have heard me say this on another podcast, but truly, this thing came out in January, January 1st, and then it got pulled and I was so mad because I had clients and colleagues that were buying it left and right and showing me that they, it had come to their home and they were excited. They took pictures. And then all of a sudden, it said pre-orders only. And I'm like, how can something be out and then not be out? Well, that's the beauty of book publishing out now. It's official. And um, I hope you'll take a look at it. You can look at it at Amazon.com. If you have an activated husband or wife, you can certainly go to Amazon and get Unleashing Your Power Moving Beyond Partner Betrayal. And if you want a 20% discount, go to Sano Press. Okay.
Okay, now the last thing that I'm going to talk to you about, which I'm very excited about, is that I am doing a Help Her Heal 12-week group series. And I got to say, I got to do it for men because what I know to be true is that partners get very concerned if their husbands are in with other female sex addicts. So this one's going to be for men. And 12 Tuesdays, it starts next Tuesday. And every week, we're going to go over a chapter in the book. We're going to talk about examples. And since I've been doing this for a couple of years now, I'm going to talk to you about every conceivable thing that can go wrong and every conceivable thing that could go right. And if you're interested in signing up for that group, I am limiting it. So you can contact me at Carol at carolthecoach.com. And I would love to uh, get you into the group and take you on a 12-week journey and hopefully teach you empathy, right? That's what I said I want to do. I'm getting such a kick out of it. I've, I've been branded as the relationship whisperer. That's kind of hard to say. So the relationship whisperer is um, when you can work with couples that are very, very activated and calm them down and bring them into safety and stabilization, and actually not look at the issues they present, but instead look at the issues underneath the issues so that we can help him or her heal as quickly as possible. You can't rush this stuff. There's no doubt about it. But when you know what you're doing, um, you can expedite the course. And that's what I am all about, expediating the course. I love it, and that's why I want to do it. I want to help couples heal. You know, when I was younger, one of the best ways to make money was to be a mediator. And psychotherapists could mediate instead of um, couples that were divorcing or couldn't get along, instead of them going through the court and having to deal with attorneys. And interestingly enough, I said, there is no way in Hades I will ever do that. That is conflictual. That's ugly. People are fighting. They're not getting along. They're name-calling. They're hurt. They're, it's tragic. I would never do that. And now look at me. I have picked what I believe to be the hardest situation to remedy, and that is a couple that wants to stay together after sexual betrayal. Now, if you're a single guy and you don't have a partner and you've got sex addiction, well, I want to say that we know that you've got a lot to deal with because not only are you working on making your life more meaningful and you want better self-esteem, and, you know, you're tired of self-loathing and you're tired of being in this dark world that nobody knows but you, right? And, and really, you don't have anybody to help hold you accountable. You have to do it yourself. Well, that 
can be really, really hard. And my hat's off to you. But that's when you use a group to help hold you accountable. That's when you decide what principles are the most important to you. It was so funny because I was talking to a client today that has 96 clean days. And I said, what are you doing that has afforded you for the first time in your life 96 clean days? He said, it is so weird, Carol. I am getting up at 5.30 every morning. I'm reading the green book, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and then I'm reading some Bible verses. And then I am I'm documenting all the things that I'm supposed to do to have a really um, recovery, steadfast life. And he showed me everything he was doing and how he documented it. And I told him, I said, you know, we've known for a long time, if you want to lose weight, the number one way to do that is to write down what you put in your mouth. It sounds so simple, but people don't want to do that. Boring, it's monotonous. It's, um, you know, you say, oh, I'll catch that tonight, and then you don't do it that night, and then you say, I'll catch it in the morning, and then your morning gets ahead of you. And before you know it, you're three or four days behind. And if you're three or four days behind, um, you're not accurate anymore. So I love the fact that he is doing his very best to document every positive change that he's making. If he's walking, he's writing it down. If he's working out, he's writing it down. If he's reading the Bible, he's writing it down. If he's saving money, he's writing it down. I mean, this guy is cementing his life. And someday he'll be able to look at that and he'll, he'll be proud of the fact that not only did he change his life, but that he used a very structured format to prove to himself that he was following his recovery tools. Now tonight, I'm going to be interviewing a woman who wrote a, an incredible memoir um, of traumatic psychological abduction and sexual exploitation. Um, And she's going to be sharing her life and what it meant to be under the spell of somebody in a much more powerful position than, than she. And she's going to talk about a college student, Carrie Pansy, who went through this horrible ordeal, and actually she was able to reclaim her power and right some of the wrongs, and she used reframing. She was able to look at her life and find purpose in it and grow stronger from it and no longer be defined by that exploitation. So I am really excited to be interviewing her because obviously 
there is quite a, a past here, and her writing is absolutely incredible. It's um, riveting. It makes you want to just keep reading and reading and reading. So I am actually going to be welcoming Carrie to the show tonight. She's going to be coming on and talking about her memoir. Again, it's called Seduced into Darkness, Transcending My Psychiatrist's Sexual Abuse. And Carrie, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having well, me hello, on. Well, hello, boy. Are you okay? <laughs> I sure can. Can you hear me okay? Great. I sure Great. can. I just, We're good. Excellent. Well, you know, I obviously had found out about this book, and, you know, we deal with exploitation on this show and on so many levels, and this is your memoir, Seduced into Darkness, Transcending My Psychiatrist's Sexual Abuse. And so I want to ask you, what compelled you to write your story, and, and why now? Especially with the Me Too okay. movement, why now? Absolutely. Well, it actually started, I started writing it way before the Me Too movement. This happened back in, in the early 80s when I was a college student. And um, it's been a 40-year process to get to the point where I was actually able to publish it. And it was released March the 1st. And of course, then the whole world shut down March the 15th <laughs> this last year. So it was kind of anticlimactic, but it also gave me more time to just sort of uh, sit with it, what it was like to put this memoir out there. So it was a 40-year process from the time it happened to when it was actually published. And I wrote on and off for years. And then my got my daughter into college, didn't really want to put it out there when she was younger and at home, and I wasn't really ready for it. And um, and then it all came about, and, of course, all of this, as I got my contract with the publisher, you know, Harvey Weinstein was being sentenced, and the Jeffrey Epstein scandal came out. And, I mean, certainly does seem like it's the time now to be hearing more about these stories, what exactly happened in this kind of exploitive relationship, how we can prevent them, you know, what needs to happen for a victim and also perpetrator. Um, very often people just get their wrists slapped, as my, my um, doctor did, and then he went on to do it again after my trial and whatnot. So he was, it was not handled well back in the 80s. I don't know that it's really being handled that much better now, um, although I do know that it is, it's a crime in uh, about half of the states and the attorney general gets involved as soon as there's a complaint of sexual exploitation um, with uh, medical providers or mental health providers. Well, yes, and you were so brave to um, take this on. So let me ask yeah. you, tell us about why you included um, the myth as a concept and context for your story. Because you have a specific myth that really yep. um, is meant work for what you went through. Absolutely. And I think I'll, I'll say that I think it's a, an important archetype for anyone who is dealing with an underworld journey, as many partners are. I work with partners and sex addicts now as a professional, and I certainly see the telltale signs of the feeling of being yanked into the underworld. And so I put my story in the context of the myth of Persephone, and she's the goddess of spring and queen of the underworld, 
And she is the young, innocent maiden daughter of Zeus and Demeter, who is abducted, seized by her uncle Hades, and brought down into his underworld lair. She's raped, held hostage in the underworld, and then he makes her his queen. And long story short, it's all metaphor for someone who goes through a rupturing, dark, um, traumatic experience, but also has a transformative opportunity to become a wise person. And so she comes out, she's rescued, and then she then becomes goddess of spring too, which really signifies the renewal that is possible for anyone going through a dark journey. I mean, it takes work. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. So not that it's an easy thing, but putting my, putting my story in the context of Persephone gave me great comfort to tap into a universal theme that has happened, you know, through the millennium. And, um, and so you, you call know, including that the Persephone myth, right? Yes, the myth of Persephone. You, yep. Okay, so now, obviously, you went through this horrible ordeal, and that goddess, if you will, um, represents the strength it took for you to even work through this issue. And, and so mm-hmm. people who are listening to the show may say, Okay, we're going to be talking about sexual exploitation, but truly, you have a certification that allows you to work with sex addicts and partners of sex addicts. So, did that come out of your experience with the psychiatrist? Well, it's it's a great question. It's very interesting because uh, just as synchronicities can happen in your life, um, I found myself being asked to come back to work at a treatment center here in Santa Fe. It's called the Life Healing Center. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had worked there in the 90s as a trauma therapist, had done my internship there in art therapy, and then left and did other things and was asked to come back and be an art therapist again in 2011. And I wind up on the campus and I'm like, what is all this stuff about sex addiction? Because back in the 90s when I worked there, it wasn't being talked about. We looked at repetition compulsion, you know, based on sexual trauma, but there was no languaging for addiction around sexuality. Well, when I came back to the same facility in 2011 to once again work as an art therapist, I was um, kind of stunned by how much the focus was of the program on this issue. And so they wound up sending me for CSAT training and also I was in the first class of APSAT, the association uh, that works with um, the traumatized partner and or trains therapists that work with the traumatized partners and couples. And so it was only after I had gone through the trainings and I was working with people and I was seeing this imagery that I was like, holy cow, I relate to this journey. And I started thinking again about my doctor and his behaviors and his, the fact that he did it again. And I was like, oh my goodness, he, I think he was a sex addict or he certainly had sexually compulsive disorder that made him betray his ethics and put himself in position of great vulnerability as well, obviously, as his clients. Um, and, but sadly, when, he, when I took him before the ethics committee, after I had actually won two suits against him, I filed a complaint. Um, they just slapped his wrist. He had supervision for six months, and he went back right at it. Within a couple of years, he was already involved with another client. So I think the system failed him in terms of looking at the degree of his own illness, really, um, that if he could have been uh, rehabilitated, you know, perhaps he would not have done it again, or he, or he could have, or he may have been forced to leave the profession. You know, I think we have a lot more sophistication now, but it doesn't, it still doesn't always happen that people hold 
such a perpetrator responsible because it's really a, um, a devastating betrayal of trust and there's a real trauma bond there. So many people never speak out. Well, absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about how he seduced you and then mm-hmm. what infractions yeah. occurred as a result and then how you came to uh, move out of that web and empower yourself mm-hmm. to stand up for for the exploitation and say no yeah. more. Okay. Well, um, I was 21, I, or I just turned 21, and I was uh, in the period of about three months before seeing him. I was having symptoms of, um, I had been on antibiotics for four years and had a complete immune system breakdown. This is when girls, young women were given tetracycline like candy back in the 70s and 80s for, for acne, right? Not knowing what happens to your gut. And so I was having this, a lot of immune system problems, couldn't focus in college. I was very career oriented, but didn't have, my, my brain wasn't working well. And then I started having panic attacks. So my folks set me up with a couple of doctors back in the DC area, which is where I'm from, Frederick, Maryland, um, for consultations. And uh, we decided upon him because he was Georgetown educated, highly recommended, very experienced, and um, started and left college in Virginia to go and see him. And uh, we definitely had a nice connection. Um, I was going through a lot of kind of at a spiritual awakening. I was attending these prayer services and I was feeling like for the first time I was actually really connecting with God. But at the same time that I was very, very depressed. So I was kind of swinging up and down between, oh my God, there is purpose. There is a God, there's meaning. And oh my God, I'm so depressed that I want to get out of bed. And so he started seeing me three times a week. He was Freudian trained, you know, very early on, he was asking a lot of questions about my sexuality, which now I look back and go, oh my gosh, you like, they were so intrusive and inappropriate from the beginning, but I, but I knew he was a Freudian trained therapist and I didn't know what therapy was, you know, I was a college kid. Right. So I was answering the questions and he started to slowly kind of, um, you know, uh, whittle down my boundaries and make it seem like, you know, all my problems were due to this uptight religious family I came from and my parents were really square. And, you know, he was just like, you know, trying to, it was like basically trying to suggest that a lot of my problems were that I was sexually uptight, which is not what I went in there for. I went in there for panic attacks. I had had boyfriends, normal relationships. I had regretted that I hadn't found my true partner yet. But again, I think most normal therapists would say, you're 21. You need to discover yourself before you're ready, right? No, but he spun right. everything into this pathological lens about, oh, yes, this, this dynamic and that dynamic. And slowly, really whittled down my trust in my relationships and my family because, of course, after all, why would I be feeling so bad if it, it had to be someone else's fault, right? You know, it was like this is this was this seduction. And then he um, just, I would say what he did is he turned me against myself and my own instincts and, um, you know, wanted to know more about my spiritual path and he wanted to me to invite him to one of the events I went to. So, there was all this kind of unfolding of this sort of spiritual component. He started telling me in session um, about how he had prayed and this light appeared and he had thought of me and he wanted to know more about what I was experiencing. And all of this made me feel very special, right? Like, oh my gosh, my doctor is really interested in what I'm experiencing. 
And I wanted yeah, to kind absolutely. of, I, in my naivete, I wanted to heal the split that I saw between psychology and religion and kind of have this, you know, this spiritual experience that my doctor's now understanding. And by this time, I had gotten so isolated. You know, I had left college. All my friends, my friends in my hometown were all off at college. So I was very alone going back to live in my family home, which was very depressing at 21. You know, I'd been a great student and doing well in life. And then it was like nothing was working. So I was, you know, very vulnerable to his questioning my truth. So I started um, not trusting myself or my instincts. And um, so, you know, and and there was an event where he invited me and I thought I was going to go horseback riding and have this lovely weekend with him and his daughter and, and, you know, and before I know it, he's giving me drugs and something and alcohol and I blacked out and I couldn't remember the rest of the weekend. So once that happened, I was so trauma, I was so traumatized and I had to so much make it right and get my doctor back, the one that I had trusted in, that I just started slowly compartmentalizing and just denying what my body was saying. I was so confused and ashamed just deeply ashamed that I was afraid he would lose his license. I mean, he would tell me that if anybody found out he could lose his license. So I had this huge weight on me that I couldn't tell anybody else what was happening. So in that, I just got more and more attached to him and I was declining more and more as the weeks went on. So, or months, you know, so, um, yeah, but anyway, I long would think, story short. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. I, would, I would think that, you know, in some ways, Carrie, this was an auto-exacerbating problem because obviously you went to him for help. He pathologized you for issues that were not even the reason you came to him. You started to be dependent on him and his notoriety, his attention, probably even his affection. And then he exploited you more. And then that made Mm -hmm. you feel worse about yourself. And yet, more special. I mean, truly, sexual oh, abuse victims say, I, I loved how much attention I got from this person. Yes. I mean, that, that's yes. part of the, the seduction. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Tell us a little bit. Yeah. I was going to say one other piece that he did, too, that was a real hook for me was he was supporting me in my career and he was saying you would make a great therapist and if you go to graduate school, my corporation will pay for your education and you can come back and work for me. So that happened even before the sexual violation happened. So I was like, oh my God, this famous psychiatrist thinks I'm so smart and he's going to support, you know, so it was like, and I wasn't getting that from my family who were much more traditional and conservative and my mom had worked outside the home. So I felt, you know, like the world was opening up to me in terms of this career offer. Um, so that was a huge piece in it. But, uh, but anyway, long story short, in terms of how I started to get my power back, it, it went on for quite some time. And by the time I finally ended it with him, I just felt like I was going to go crazy. And at that point, I was in a doctoral program in clinical psychology and had a huge amount of responsibility and had been awarded a fellowship in behavioral medicine and was part of me was so excited. And the other part of me, I was so not functioning well. I like, that's all I had was school. I wasn't making friends and um, I, I ended it with him. And then soon thereafter started having panic attacks and just felt like 
I was going to die with the secret. Like I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't want him to lose his license. And so I attempted suicide twice. And the second time I, I mean, here I am in this doctoral program in clinical psychology. I mean, the whole thing was mind bending, hence the allusion to a Hades, right? Underworld experience. And, um, but what, it was when I wound up in the, uh, after the second attempt, I was transferred to a world-class psychiatric hospital, Shepherd Pratt in Baltimore. And, it was at my, probably my second treatment team meeting. They sat down with me and the head of the hospital said, we really feel like you need to take action against him. And if we, if you won't, we will. And he actually handed me the card of an attorney. Now, if he hadn't done that, or if they hadn't supported me in really, you know, finding my voice and taking action, I don't know that I would have. So in that way, I was fortunate, but I was also unfortunate because here I was, you know, I blew up my life and I was in this hospital for six months. And, um, you know, he, having people in the profession listen to what I had had, I mean, everybody was just horrified. And so anyway, I contacted the attorneys. They came and took my deposition while I was in the hospital. And uh, then I proceeded to go through two court battles of, you know, still very fragile and quite sickly. And it took a long time before I was even properly diagnosed as having candidiasis and all these immune system issues. So it was really okay. kind of, it was a one day at a time journey of one step at a time. I have nothing to lose. I have nothing else to lose now. I might as well follow doc- these doctors, <laughs> their doctor's orders, which of course was kind of hard for me to follow doctor's orders after what had happened. But it really was like, I, at least it was a goal. I can talk to these people. I can see what they say. You know, and um, it was front page, you know, in the newspaper for we, you know, for a couple of different times for a week, and and then I took him to the ethics committee, and then after that, I found out he did it again. It was through a series of connections. I found out he did it again, and he was still with this next patient. And um, at that time, I got invited to testify before the Maryland General Assembly. They were looking at creating a task force to look at this issue in the state of Maryland. There were so many stories coming out in the um in the early 90s and uh so i testified and then soon thereafter i get a call from cbs news as i was moving to santa fe saying we hear you have an interesting story will you tell it to us so then i you know i would never have done that if i hadn't found out he did it again so in some ways that helped me to find out he did it again to to take some of the onus i was still beating myself up for it but then to hear that it really, he was doing it again. He had learned nothing and I had put all of my energy into getting well. I was like, I, I, I need to speak out more. So yeah, I was on the national news, CBS news, uh, 48 hours, Dan rather. That was mind bending. I mean, you know, I would never have imagined walking into the doctor's office at age 21. I would all of a sudden be on, you know, on this show talking about it. So, um, yeah, so it took a long time, though, to be really ready to write the book, and I feel very proud of it now. And, and um, you know, doing art was really important. I'm an art therapist. That was a very important turning point for me to have the images speak my truth because I was so mentally confused, and I think that's what happens a lot with partners, right? The gaslighting, you don't know what's real. You've lost track of your insight or your instincts. So art making was enormously important for me in tuning into my well, own self and my own wisdom. I, I absolutely want our listening audience to know that I'm talking with Carrie. Is it is she? Carrie is. How do you yeah. say your last name? Yeah, yeah. And Carrie you is can she. see her artwork. Her artwork is on her website. That's www. 
CarrieIshe.com, and that is C-A-R-R-I-E-I-S-H-E-E.com. And you do, Carrie, you have some beautiful, beautiful work. And as I was looking at it, first of all, it, it's very creative. It's very light. It's very joyful. I don't know if you do any dark work, but I sure didn't see any on your website. And I thought to myself, everything you've been through has absolutely made you the person you are today. And you know that I, too, I train for APSATs. I'm on the board of APSATs. Mm-hmm. And, and what I, uh-huh. I believe is that you really got to that post-traumatic growth. You used something yes. that was horrendous that actually caused you to, to try to suicide twice. Yeah. And you came yeah. out of it and you grew and yeah. you advocated and you've made it a purpose and a passion for you, and you're making a difference all over the world. Well, thank you. But, you know, one of the most wonderful um, bits of feedback I got was I have a friend, a therapist friend, who gave her book, gave my book to a client of hers who had suffered this, and she hadn't been able to read for two years, which, of course, many trauma survivors can't, right? It's like your frontal lobes go offline. Right. And she said it was the first time she could sit and read in two years, and she read the book overnight. She was so riveted, and and she was so empowered by just hearing someone else having gone through this and what, you know, what I was able to pull in. And I had a lot of gifts along the way and supportive people. And um, But that, that was some of the highest praise, really, you know, to hear that, because it was like, why I wrote it really is when I was in the hospital and I was so, I'd lost everything. I'd lost my doctorate. You know, I was going for this doctorate. I was doing well. I had lost my friends. I had, was alienated from my family. I'd lost my health. And it was like, I was so hungry for reading firsthand stories of people that overcame dark journeys. And I was so hungry for it and read like, you know, voraciously during those years. So um, I really, you know, wrote the book for for those young people, those young women, or even older middle-aged women, right, that have gone through something um, so horrendous. So, well, yeah, you know, the important part of my healing. Book, you talk in your book about art being so important in your healing as well as obviously having written the book. And I was wondering, um, that art, art that you did broke through your denial and, and it helped you yeah. to reclaim your truth. And and do you have any excerpts from the book that you might be able to read us now um, so that sure. our listening audience can understand how art did that for you? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, how much time do I have? This is like probably like a page and a half. Is that too long? If I can, I can just uh, maybe read a couple paragraphs. What do you think? I think you can read as much as you want. We have um, 20 minutes, so you are good to go. Oh, perfect. Okay, perfect. Okay, so I am, I'll just tell you, locate you where I, where I am in the book here. Um, I had gone to my first art therapy group, um, maybe two weeks into my stay at the hospital. And um, so I'll just jump in here. So something unfamiliar quivered inside of me. It took me a few seconds to recognize that it was a feeling of happiness. I thought back to the zany sense of humor I'd had in my teens and how my friends and I would laugh joyously at the absurdities of life. Was it coming back? I can tell you're creative and very resourceful, Audrey, the art therapist continued. 
Sitting there in our art review session, I began to see where my creativity and resourcefulness, my strengths, had helped me to survive a severe depression and a poisonous relationship with my psychiatrist. It was a damned revelation. I sat up straighter. That night, I lay awake in bed with the door open, listening to the night staff whisper in the halls. I couldn't stop thinking about the creative energy from another realm that had poured into me in art class. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting emotional. Oh, boy, it's like I can remember it. She or it I bet. Had wanted to, uh, yeah, she or it had wanted to reach out part of me again. This connection to my higher self felt more real and important than the suicide attempts, psychiatric commitments, lawsuits, or despicable shrinks. Through my bedroom window, I noticed that the moon was brighter than usual. Maybe there was hope for me. Mystic and psychiatrist Carl Jung said the psyche speaks to us through symbols rather than words. Here I verbally rehashed my ordeal a hundred times over, but never once had I given myself credit for surviving it. The drawing helped me do that. I couldn't wait to go back to the studio. If I had my way, I'd be there every day, every hour, painting away all the remnants of my madness. I wanted to go as often as possible so I could expel every last drop of angst. I wanted to be done with all the mud, the monsters, the ugliness and traumas, and I was eager to put them down where they belonged, on paper or canvas, releasing them from my mind and heart. After painting and sketching for weeks, I continued to unearth more and more positive aspects of myself, which I could nurture and trust. One day in art therapy, I felt extremely lighthearted and found it easier than usual to draw. I grabbed some colored chalk and made a quick, simple drawing of abstract shapes on red paper. I tacked it on the board and headed back to my seat. Holy shit, said Richard, a wonderful gay man recovering from the heartbreak of losing his his lover. He stared, transfixed. My God, Carrie, another voice rang out. Others in the room gasped. Someone whispered, Jesus, Carrie. I spun around and took in the image from a distance. I froze. I hadn't really seen it before. Dozens of jagged penis-shaped parts were pointing inward from all directions, stabbing at a void in the center. Dark shades of red, blue, and black pulsated with pain. A wave of nausea washed over me as I realized that this drawing of mine was telling a story, repeated psychic rape. Audrey addressed the shock in the room. Do you want to tell us about your image, Carrie? I answered in an unnatural monotone. I guess I was abused by my shrink. Those who were still working popped up their heads from their unfinished pieces. For a few seconds, we sat there examining what had sprung out of me. All were quiet. I fled the studio and practically ran back to my room, not caring that I was being followed closely by a staff member. I closed the door. I felt as if a dam built of numbness, rationalization, and denial had been holding back my grief, but now it crumbled irrevocably. A flood of sorrow and betrayal surged forth, drowning me. My entire body heaved with deep, urgent sobs. The door flew open and the nurse reminded me I wasn't allowed to shut it and be alone. I collapsed on the floor behind the bed in an effort to gain some privacy. The flood washed away my self-blame, my misconceptions that I had been emotionally and spiritually violated and psychically shattered, abused by a man I trusted, the doctor my parents had paid to heal me, a mentor with whom I had shared my deepest spiritual yearnings and dreams of a beautiful life, a person I believed to be a father figure, a healer, my closest friend. I couldn't condone Tony's behavior any longer. It had almost killed me. 
my body convulsed and I cried myself to sleep. So that was the breakthrough image that I completely created unconsciously in a very jovial state and put it up there. And it was like all the denial. Because at that point, I was still, even after they said, we think you should take him to court, I was still holding on to that I was at fault. If I hadn't been so fucked up, this never would have happened. That's how much I internalized the shame and, and, you know, his manipulations, right. To be the one at fault. Yeah. Right. And so that image, I mean, that just broke through. And from then I really started working. I started healing and I called the attorneys yeah, and I started telling my story. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. And so let me ask you, and, and also remind my listening audience that I'm talking with Carrie Ishii and she wrote seduced into darkness, transcending my psychiatrist, sexual abuse, and the interesting thing is that Carrie is an APSAS counselor. Are you a counselor or a coach? I'm a clinical counselor, art therapist, and life coach. I'm all, I'm all three. But I'm trained wow. as an APSATS therapist. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what I know about APSATS then is you can help people all over the world, either with your coaching or within yep. your own state, following the guidelines and state lines. Um, did you ever, ever have any confrontation with him after, after court? No, I didn't. I, I did not. Okay. And I okay. certainly had many fantasies about showing up at his office and sitting down and confronting him, but I never did. I just didn't want to get, I was, I didn't want to get sucked back in and, you know, be manipulated and be compassionate for him because I actually did have compassion for him. That's how, that's the ultimate thing that was exploited was my compassion, even more than my sexuality or my spirit, my compassion was exploited by this man where I started taking care of him basically in the relationship. So, well, um, and often that's the cycle, isn't it, Carrie, that that you end up having so much compassion that it is that mixed bag of taking care of and also knowing in your intuition that what he's doing is wrong. And so you were smart enough not to go back and get sucked back in and, you know, yep. violate your own sense of intuition. Yes. Yes. So yeah, let me ask we you believe he's deceased now. Yeah. Let me ask you, because we have listening, a listening audience that is that includes sex addicts, um, in recovery, that's why they're listening to the show, and partners uh-huh, yeah. who who love their um, addicts and they want to understand them better. And then we have yeah. clinicians and coaches that listen because they always learn something from my guests. Uh, you know, you list, the listeners are amazed at how much information they get on a regular basis. So yeah. I want to ask you, do you have any tips for our listeners who – you know, maybe on their own journey to healing and they want to shift mm-hmm. out of that victimization and move into empowerment so that they can mm-hmm. do something totally different but very similar mm-hmm. in nature to what you've accomplished. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I would say that certainly accessing your creativity in every way possible. It doesn't have to be just through art making. It could be from singing. It could be from the way you decorate your home. It could be journaling every morning. It's expressive, like being able to express, express, express what is inside of you so you can get past the pain into 
more episodes of connection with beauty or with soul. So I think not just sitting there quietly holding stuff in, but expressing and moving things out. And then I think a spiritual journey, a a spiritual perspective about, you know, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to give this meaning? A book that I read in the hospital, a very famous book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who talks of his experience in Auschwitz and losing his family, and he went on to develop logotherapy, which is the the therapy of meaning. That book was riveting for me because I thought if he could get through that and come to the States and start this school looking at what men really want more than everything, anything is not like what Freud said, sex and libido and lust, but wants meaning. Um, if he could do that after what he went through, there's a path for me. So I think finding the finding your mentors, finding those beacons of light that, that make you go, oh, he did it or she did it. I can do it. And it's a one day at a time thing. And no one's going to do it for you. You have to choose every day. And I think you've got to find ways to fill yourself up no matter what's going on with your partner. Obviously, couples work and developing intimacy and, and the, the healing that can happen from doing this work individually can fortify couples enormously, even couples that have had betrayals. But I think ultimately, um, you know, the partnerships <clears throat> mend to the degree to which people are willing to also do their really in, own individual soul work and never stop. You know, it's ongoing. And it's exciting. Yes. Well, you know, you are absolutely an inspiration because you really did fall into that hole of darkness and yet pulled yourself up and out. And, you know, it did pull you out of that victimization state and you became empowered. And truly, Patrick Kahn says this, uh, you know, the sex addict guru, he says, when you've Mm -hmm. been through terrible trauma and suffering, a transformation occurs, and Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal is to turn it around and give back in some way, and between your art, your writing, and what you do with different ways. So I just Mm -hmm. want to thank you, because obviously you're making a real difference in the world, and if people want to get a hold of you, now I mentioned Mm -hmm. your website again is www.carrie.com. C A R R I E I S H E E Ishi dot com. Mm-hmm. And they can email you at Carrie at Carrie dot com if they have a question or maybe they'd like you to speak for one of their organizations. And yeah. you have your book trailer is on YouTube. So tell yeah. us how they can find you there. Yeah, you can go to YouTube Seduced into Darkness and it says book trailer. And there's also, uh, you can go to the Zoom book launch on Seduced into Darkness, and, and you see me reading. You have a couple of professionals introducing me and the topic, and then me reading from the book as well. So those are two other places to locate information about me and my story. And I would absolutely love to speak to, you know, I'm really passionate about supporting um, mental health providers. Now being on the other side of it, I'm a provider now, you know, and like, how much we have to work on our own wellness. You know, it's part of why I also became a coach is that I love the coaching perspective about really going for what you want, not just getting over your past, but going for what you want. And I think that's important for all therapists, all mental health uh, practitioners, medical practitioners, anybody in the helping field to be constantly in a process of developing their lives. So they're beautiful lives, not just caretaking lives. So 
Oh, yeah. Please reach out if you're interested. And, and thank you so much. And, you know, th- thanks for bearing with me through my tears. I, there's, I, I can really, re- I can't get through reading my book without crying some because it's really, it brings me back there, you know, and these were points of turning points for me. And, and uh, I'm just excited to be where I am now and that healing can happen. Well, you should know, and I know you do, that you never have to apologize for your emotions, certainly not on my show <laughs> or with me, because emotions are welcomed here. And so I, I just want to thank you so very much. And I, I want to say that in some ways I can really appreciate where you were at when COVID happened, because I, too, had released a book the year before in April and was going on a book tour to Italy. Uh. They canceled uh, that as well as uh, many other book tours. And, you know, I just really feel like I, I'm not regretful at all. I, I just know that good things come to people that are willing yeah. to give to the world. And, and certainly that's yeah. you. And that was my book. Yeah. And I just love that um, we're in it together to help people heal. So, Carrie Ishii, thanks again. And come back on the show and let us know what you're doing. Sounds great. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a great week. Okay, you too. Bye. Yes, so that was Carrie, and she, and obviously, you've got to check out her um, art. Very expressive, very beautiful. Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer that when you create, it heals the brain, and she was healing all over the place, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be interviewed on national TV. Wow. Well, actually, I was interviewed on national TV, but I didn't even know it at the time. I thought I was going local, and they played me on national, and I just went, Dateline? I was on Dateline? Uh, So Google me and see if you can find out when, where, and how that occurred. We'll talk more about that next week. Listen, we have to go. But as they say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself and make sure you make it a good week and uh, have fun and create and heal that brain, would you? We'll see you next week for more Sex Health with Carol, the coach.